right. So there may or may not have been a, a an intro. Kyle's going to try post production, and mind you, we're we're very new at this. One day we'll get to, get it together. Though. We'll get it together, and, and it <clears throat> took us a good hour to try to set this up. But we do think that we have our audio figured out to where there is less echo, so you can just focus on our smooth, velvety voices and our content um, rather than any distractions. So we do apologize for that in the past. We also thank you for those who've been tuning in uh, as you've been patient with us. We've kind of upgraded our tech. And uh, yeah, you, I mean, you might have heard a cool little uh, jingle prior to this. So last week, we started talking about the cardiovascular system. Our main discussion was of bioenergetics, discussing... Uh, energy systems and uh, really uh, breaking them down into three primary categories, the phosphagen system, anaerobic glycolysis, and then oxidative phosphorylation. You can think of that on a spectrum from going very fast and hard and then getting slower and longer. And we're going to pick up where we left off, which was talking more about the work that is slower and longer. Uh, it is often uh, an aspect of training that is not necessarily underutilized because we don't know who all might be listening. A lot of endurance athletes certainly go long and slow, Typ- but strength athletes typically underutilize as it, it. As it pertains yeah. to strength athletes and CrossFit athletes, yeah. we've seen that they uh, tend to underutilize this system. And this system is very powerful in its ability to not just help you recover and improve on uh, aspects of your technique. That is when uh, the environment is slower, less stressful uh, from a ventilation standpoint, from a lactate standpoint, but uh, it also lays the foundation for which the other two systems, those which have to run at a higher intensity, Uh, It lays a foundation for those to sit on top of. So we're going to uh, continue there. And Sobo, if you just want to, though we explained it in the last podcast, just explain very briefly the physiology behind this system, including the the time domain and maybe even uh, what substrates are being used here and how that could influence someone's goals or training. All right, so the oxidative system is your long-term energy source, produces the most energy, your most bang for your buck. You're looking at hundreds of ATP versus just a few with your um, fossil creatine in your, your anaerobic systems. So this one is, like kind of what Zach said, this one's constantly in the background um, at all times. Right now, if you're listening, you're probably pretty much burning um, the oxidative system up pretty good, probably 80 to 90% of your energy is coming from the oxidative system. So the oxidative system is great because it utilizes fat, carbohydrates, and some proteins to be used for fuel. In In this case, depending on what textbooks you read and what your electron transport chain math is either 2.5 or 3 ATP you get for one NADH. Your ATP for the oxidative system can be between 34 and 38. Um, it's just some math stuff there. Um, fats, it can be anything above about 96. You can get 96 to 500 ATP for every fat molecule. 
So this is a substantial amount of energy produced. The only caveat you need for this energy system is you need oxygen. Without oxygen, you cannot produce energy through the system, and yet we breathe every day, so we always have pretty ample supply of oxygen for our bodies to go through this relatively easily. So we talked about the energy systems, the kind of the high demand ones. This is kind of you get down to 75, 70% and below. This is the primary uh, energy source. When I say primary, if we're, if you're working out at 70% of your max, you might be 70% oxidative system, 20% anaerobic, and then you know 5 or 10% um, the fossil creatine system. So they're all working at the same time. This one just has a greater contribution to the overall output because you have the opportunity and the availability of oxygen to your body. So this case, you're breathing, your body's using the oxygen. And the other, the other situations we talked about last week, the demand for energy is so high that we don't, we can't get the oxidative system working fast enough to produce and match that demand. Now the demand for energy is low enough that the oxidative system can meet it. Um, so the oxidative system is great. It, well, If you are in science or anything, you'll hear about the Krebs cycle on how we turn acetylcholate and we produce energy through cranking the Krebs cycle. You also hear the electron transport chain. All these wonderful things happen in what we call the mitochondria. So the mitochondria in physiology is known as the powerhouse of the cell. That's primarily where we get all our energy from. So when we talk about oxidative system and metabolism, your mitochondria are the huge big suppliers of energy for our body. And so anywhere between walking, running, you know, rowing, cycling, we're using the oxidative system, you know, at huge amounts all day long, not just this during exercise, sleeping, oxidative system, you're working at your desk oxidative system so the oxidative system is the engine that drives the car i guess you could say the phosphocreatine system is like hitting the nos button but you can't drive your car on nos you have to drive your car on gas and the engine so the oxidative system is kind of just the gas that fuels the engine yeah you can get that quick spike with nos and go 100 percent, but that's you know just a short burst of energy and we mentioned uh, in the last show, as Sobo just touched on briefly, that it's not one system running at a time. Uh, as he mentioned with the percentages, uh, it might be 70 of one, uh, 20 of another, 10% of the third, where it's, uh, think of it as the uh, amplitude of a, uh, of a light. It's the dimming of one while the other uh, gets brighter. Um, they're not uh, working independent of each other, which is why it is important to train all of these energy systems. We've spoken about uh, how we train them concurrently, and we'll wrap everything up certainly by talking about how we can fit everything together in a concurrent plan. But continuing along this line of uh, the oxidative system, we spoke about how it's good for practice. A practicing skill, how it can help with recovery, and in the way that it helps with recovery. And Sobo, hop in if if I'm missing on this it is twofold. It can help us with recovery in that it's simply monitoring fatigue due to its low demands of intensity. So when 
we hop on the erg for 20 minutes. Uh, we get off. We got uh, calorie burn. We metabolized fat. Um, but it didn't really come at a big cost of fatigue that would affect our training for the next day. So in that sense, it might be helping us recover indirectly. But then there are also ways in which the system can help us recover directly after a lower or sorry, higher intensity, lower duration bout. So if you do that intense Fran style workout, or perhaps even less that uh, 200 100 to 200 meter dash, well, if you were to just keep walking, and, and this is why cool downs exist, uh, there are properties uh, or mechanisms in this system that can help the higher intensity systems uh, recover, so to speak. So is, am I touching on that correctly? Yes, you are. It's So the, the, the technical term we call it in physiology is the epoch excess post oxygen consumption so after you get done doing a hard bout your whole metabolism stays elevated and um you have to maintain this elevated um metabolic rate it can be anywhere between a couple minutes to a half hour to some people even say up to 24 hours so if you do a fran and you what we call we build up an oxygen debt so you go hard right out the gate and you burn through those phosphocreatine stores, you're not producing, you're going through um, anaerobic glycolysis, so you're producing lactate, you're buffering a lot of hydrogens. So now you've built up this huge oxygen debt. I, I burned a lot of energy without using oxygen, which my primary source of, of burning fuel is. So once you get done working out, you have to replenish that debt because yes, you have phosphocreatine that you burn, but now you have to Rephosphorylate the ATP, rebind that creatine. We have to flush the system of lactate. We have to remove the metabolic waste that we've produced through exercise. We have to buffer those hydrogen molecules. Usually, we have to breathe those hydrogen molecules out. Um, so we built this whole, you know, pile of waste that we have to get rid of. So when you're done exercising, if you just stop, you don't. You go from you know 100 to zero. You, that waste kind of sits in your system, and it takes longer for your body to get get it out of your system. But if you maintain slight cardio, um, a cool down, if you will, you keep your um, metabolism a little higher than normal, and it allows for us to flush the system, buffer those hydrogen molecules, take um, lactate through the Cori cycle and get rid of that. And so by doing that, the oxidative system helps in recovery, not just of that bout, but recovery for a later bout of exercise if you do some form of light cardio after a workout. One thing, uh, since we we're just talking about cool downs and recovery, and uh, so well, you can probably touch on this some more, is when is it beneficial? So you're talking about it's clearing the lactate, it's clearing some of those metabolites, all those things. What about the the balance between recovery and like the adaptation you want? So sometimes you do you ever want those metabolites to sit in there because it actually allows your body to then adapt to them, or is it always good to be doing? Okay, I just did this really hard, let's say assault bike. My legs are feeling really like they have all this like big big pump, uh, and then I'm going to go do a 20 minute cool down cycle. Is that always beneficial, or sometimes should you actually let some of those things sit in there for adaptation later? So. 
there's kind of a, a, a good and bad. Yes, those metabolites are good. Um, and they, they cause adaptation. This is kind of the, the theory behind occlusion training, which could be a whole different topic. But if those metabolites and the, those hydromolecules sit in the muscle, they cause further damage, which cause further adaptation. But yet with that system, with further damage, it takes longer to recover from that. And kind of the the old school answer would be you'd rather have that stuff out of your system because it's far better to get rid of the waste than let the waste sit there because, yes, you might see a 2% gain if you let those metabolites sit in your system a little bit longer. But then those two that metabolite sit in your system delay recovery X number of hours or days, which means your next training session or the next bout may de- may be diminished, so that that next bout might not be as effective. So even though you got a two percent increase because you let those metabolites sit in your system, you had a ten percent decrease in your next workout. So your overall performance is still down eight percent. That. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It seems like it always kind of comes down to programming. You know, once you have the the basics down, once you mm-hmm. know your foundational principles, it's it's monitoring your fatigues with with a good program. So if if we had um, uh, an athlete, say a CrossFit athlete, and we're carefully monitoring the intensities with which they're performing in the uh, phosphagen system in the anaerobic glycolysis system, we might be changing the uh, intervals. We might be changing, meaning like running a progression on the intervals. We might be uh, changing up the different exercises with which they're performing, maybe an EMOM to stay efficient. Is there need to run a progression SOBO on something that is just by its very nature, low intense, uh, low inten- of low intensity, or is it something that you just you do? You know that it's going to help you recover. You know that it's going to lay the foundation for your aerobic fitness. Is there a need to form a plan around that, or just kind of keep it as engaging as possible? Because while it might not be the most exciting thing to train, it's undoubtedly important. Is there structure though? Is my question. So there's there's two kind of structured questions you have in there. Um, Cardio as a form of recovery and cardio as a form of stimulus for adaptation, right? So am, I, am I doing cardio because I need to get better at cardio or am I doing some rowing after a hard workout to recover better? So the recovery aspect is mainly just a time domain. So 20, 20 minutes or less at a low rate. Um, we say, you know, if you're on an erg, we say just paddle or just row. We say if you're on a bike, just pedal. Um, it could be just just a light jog, just be moving. Um, so as far as a recovery, there isn't like a set like, oh, you need to be at a one, you know, 58 split on the erg. You need to do that for 10 minutes or you need to maintain 90 RPMs. You know, it's just kind of you want to be above resting. You don't want to be at you know, a resting heart rate of 60, but you also don't want to be at a heart rate of 180 because now that's actually an exercise bout that's not going to help in recovery. So if you're a heart rate person, if you like heart rates, this is anywhere between 100 and about 120, 125, depending on how your heart rates work or how high your, your heart rate gets during exercise. So 
you know, this is this is, should be a, a moderate um, intensity for you for the recovery purposes. The last thing you want to do is do a, a super hard Fran or you just got done doing a super hard workout and then you hop on the erg and you try doing a 2K as fast as you can. Oh, I did a 2K. That's my recovery. No, you want it to be nice and slow and just flush the system. This case, we, there's kind of a, a pointer if you don't have a heart rate and you don't have fancy stuff. If you can maintain a normal conversation fairly easily when doing this type of recovery, you are in the right zone. So if I'm trying to talk and I'm saying, okay, um, yeah, then you're probably going too hard. But if I can have a normal conversation and keep erging or keep rowing or keep jogging or keep biking, whatever I'm doing, if you want an elliptical heck, if you want to, you know, as long as you can maintain a normal conversation, your heart rate should be elevated but yet you should be at a nice relaxed state that you are flushing the system. The blood is flowing through your arteries and veins at a, at a constant rate to go get the waste out of your body. So for recovery purposes, that's what I would recommend. If you don't have a heart rate, if you don't really know what your max stroke rate is, if you haven't done a max 2K or you don't know your max wattage on a bike, just, you know, just say, okay, I'm pedaling and I can maintain a normal conversation and it's not like I'm just, you know, I'm still – breaking a sweat i'm still breathing a little bit but i'm not dead if we're looking at more trying to cause cardiovascular adaptations this is where some some really cool um stuff can happen so there's two ways where you can look at cardio per se getting into the long slow distance compared to more of an interval training far lick kind of stuff with if you're familiar with track and field so long, slow distance is exactly what it sounds. It's long duration, a slower pace that you do for a long time. So it is slightly above that recovery stage. So you're looking 130s and above to 150s. If you're older, it's going to be lower 120s to 130s, 140s. So you're looking at an elevated heart rate or an elevated you know, exercise rate for 20, 30, 40, I mean 50 minutes you think if you're looking at some CrossFit, these guys are running 5Ks now. 5K should, you know, great 5K should be in the teens. You know, average 5Ks in the low 20s. So you're looking at that kind of duration of work, maybe even longer. You always want to train longer if you're doing endurance work than your actual event. So 30 minutes, 40 minutes of rowing, which is boring and monotonous. Same thing with kind of cycling, but that's the best way to just make sure your that engine is is running that oxidative system is at its best. I mean, the only way to train the oxidative system is to really use it at a higher elevated level. Yes, you can train the oxidative system through intervals, but you know, there's always that thing that like you got to put the mileage in, you got to put the time in. And the great thing about especially what the technology we have is ergs and bikes. You can work that cardio and not have the repetitive pounding that you get with running or other types of, of cardio. I mean, cycling is very low impact. It's very concentric. You can do it without really fatiguing your nervous system or blowing up your tendons and ligaments. Same thing with rowing. The only thing we really worry about with rowing is your lower back if you have bad form. But it's really easy. It's same monotonous, but it does benefit you far better than you can. And for the most part, what we're seeing is it's really not hurting you in your strength because you're really not even working those type 2 fibers at all. You're just oxidative, um, the type 1 fibers during these like long, slow intervals. I mean, boxers used to do miles of running just so they had this cardio um, engine built up, and they still do a lot of 
MMA fighters still do a lot of cardio so that they have a really good engine. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Now we're getting a little bit of an echo. Post production. <laughs> All right. So when um, Amanda was training for the Rio Olympics, she was just putting in endless meters on the erg. Uh, if you want to just talk a little bit about kind of what that progression looked like for her, she was nearing the Olympics. Like, of course, like with strength training, there is this overreaching phase, this peak phase. Um, but because you don't, uh, I guess, say have the numbers to determine uh, relative to a max effort, uh, what might push you past your limits or what might just stop you in your tracks? How would someone like an Olympic rower uh, peak or know what that level is to peak, if that makes sense? So if we try to put this in weightlifting terms, so volume in, in running is like intensity in um weightlifting so the closer you get to a weightlifting meet you want to start hitting higher and higher percentages right in rowing you hit higher and higher more or in, in cardio events you hit more and more volume and so you peak in your volume so you peak in your your proposed you know output and then you back off and that backing off so the way you know, some of the research is looking is we build up this huge oxidative system and you've, you've done hundreds of kilometers, a, you know, a week, you've run hundred miles a week, you've biked, you know, thousands of miles, they bike all the time. You, you built up this huge distance. And what happens is you've created this really big engine. And then what you do is you taper by dropping the volume down. So if your normal distance, you row um, a week, and we're talking; they could be pushing, um, especially the professional or the Olympic level, and even uh, premier college teams, 180 to 200 kilometers of rowing a week. And all of a sudden, you back that down and say, I mean, you drop it 60 percent. You're down to 120 kilometers, which still seems like a lot to us, but you've reduced their workload by 40 percent. Their huge engines are now just primed and ready to go. You've cut them back. And so now what happens is you've built up this huge aerobic base. And now that when you've cut back the aerobic work, you start to sneak in more anaerobic work. And what happens is that huge aerobic engine now starts to supply power to your phosphagen creatine system, to your anaerobic system. Because now normally where you burned out your phosphagen creatine system so you're going really hard and you were 90 percent phosphocreatine and five percent oxidative system and you know five percent anaerobic glycolysis now that same rate you did early in the season is now only 70 percent phosphocreatine and 25 percent oxidative so now you can maintain that same level longer or you can even push that envelope higher so it's really cool how we we basically super compensate or overshoot with the the cardio, and then when we back off, we introduce more of the high intensity stuff. And the big engine that we created actually makes the other systems better. And therefore, when we're called to perform, my ninety percent, you know, let's say my ninety percent was forty watts before, and now after training for six weeks, 
my my 90% is now 45 watts and you both tell you say okay you're going to go at 90% my 90% is now 45 your 90% stayed at 40 i'm going to be 5 watts better than you and that's how cardio adaptations work so it's all about volume a lot of volume and then backing off and and going with intensity so it's kind of like a strength training one but yet the volume is extreme with with the work and the cardiorespiratory system so so maybe the um an even better analogy would be a bodybuilder who's optimizing volume like they just want to put on or, or rather in their session they want to accumulate uh, as much volume as possible, as, not as much in a session, but over the course of uh, a macro cycle, they want to be able to perform more and more volume. Is that maybe the best indicator of putting on more muscle mass? So if they were to reduce their volume, they would see super uh, compensatory effects similar to the, the reduction in volume because in both cases, it's kind of what we're dealing with, right? Yeah. So, But the great thing about when you reduce the volume in the cardiovascular system those don't diminish quite as fast as the rate as the neuromuscular system. Does that make sense? So can you, yeah. So, so you're talking about basically the cost of not the cost of return, but the the rate of uh, dimin is diminishment a word? Diminishing the the, the diminishing the returns on uh, the uh, oxidative system is less than than. Uh, the other systems, the uh, anaerobic glycolysis and, and phosphagen systems. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So you build up – and basically why this is, and I teach this in my ex-phys class, is the, the adaptation seen with high cardiovascular responses, they are um, concrete. They're actual structural changes. So you, uh -huh. you, you have more capillaries. Your capillaries increase in size. So you've actually built more capillaries in your muscle. You Those mitochondria we talked about earlier, those get bigger. They get more of them. So once you start to detrain or you taper, that the, you're not all of a sudden going to start to shrink mitochondria. Your body doesn't just eat away at itself super quickly. Those capillaries that you lay down aren't going to just go away overnight. It's going to take months for your body to say, oh, we have all these new capillaries. We don't use them anymore. Let's get rid of them. Your body's going to be like, oh, we create all these capillaries. They're good. Why would we get rid of them? Now we're just more efficient at delivering oxygen to the muscle. So you're, when you cause cardiovascular adaptations, there are more concrete structures than just having more creatine in your system or more phosphate. You have more phosphate. That's just, a, that's just an osmotic property away from losing that all. right? You, you can lose a lot of creatine and, and you know, urinate it out and get it out of your system just as easily as you can consume it and get in your system. So those changes are relatively acute with cardiovascular adaptations. They're more long-term adaptations that stay there um, for, you know, like they've, you can, they've seen up to three months the same adaptations stay in there after long cardiovascular bouts. Which is why when, when CrossFitters uh, or, or any uh, you know, fitness enthusiasts return to high-intensity exercise, they always talk about that. For after time away, talk about those first few sessions is really being kind of shitty because the diminishing returns is greater there. Say if a runner, as long as they're still feeling healthy and their tendons are, are, are healthy, can kind of ease back in 
to to longer bouts than would a, a crossfitter after time off not to say it wouldn't certainly return but it's good to know that these diminishing returns look different for different systems i think kyle you want to hop in on this well i was just going to ask really quickly um so you know we talked about la- last episode about how hey if you want in some extra work just do like 20 minutes on the row or the ski or any kind of low intensity uh you, i think you said maybe 30 minutes sobo um and then we were talking we were saying just you know it has to be a lot of volume 45 60 minutes if you have time and just hopping on the rower for 20 or 30 minutes are you actually improving or getting adaptations there in the oxidative system or does it need to be um i think zach kind of touched on this earlier does there need to be like progression there week to week where okay well now when i had time i just did 20 minutes but now i have to do 25 minutes and things have to just keep getting greater and greater. If you're looking for... You're saying if, not if it's a cool down pace. Not if it's just a cool down, not if it's uh, recovery, if you're actually looking for adaptations. Is there, because it's the oxidative system and it is relatively low fatiguing, is it good to just add that little bit of extra in if you can and you can do that pretty consistently? Or do you really have to get up into these longer time domains if you want to do that? Well, the, the progression, there is still progression with cardio. I mean, you can't think... You know, if Zach's old story about when he first met me, and you go on the elliptical, do the same thing every day, nothing's going to change. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's say, let's just say an example. You know, you have 20 minutes to work out, or 20 minutes you can do extra cardio, and you hop on the erg, or you hop on the what bike, you hop on a bike or whatever. So figure out what you can do in that 20 minutes. So let's say I hopped on the Aerodyne and I rode for 20 minutes and I did 190 calories. Well, the goal should be the next time is to at least do 190 calories again and hopefully do more. So if you still have that 20-minute time window, you now have to try to slowly increase your intensity because your 70% mm-hmm. today is not 70% in three weeks. So yeah, today I can do 190 calories. Next, in three weeks, if I only do 190 calories, that might be really slow in my heart rate if you had a heart rate monitor on you. It might be five or six beats lower which means you're not causing that same stress on the system. So there has to be some progression. It doesn't have to be as structured and as, you know, planned out as, you know, five sets of five and then four sets of three. It can be, I have 20 minutes, I'm going to erg. I got, you know, two and a half K in this week. I want to get 2,750 meters next week. And then it goes to three. And then, you know, eventually you're doing, you're, you're going, you know, you're doing a pretty good, amount of work in those 20 minutes mm-hmm. but it's all it's all has to progress unless you just maintain the same pace and that's not what we want to see so there has to be some form of progression it just doesn't have to be as structured or as as grounded as you know a, a weightlifting routine so so that might look um well, what i was going to say is a, a, a interesting thing for someone to do uh, might be to say you know, take that, okay, whenever I have extra time, it's always going to be a 20-minute row and then just track that across weeks and months and just eventually maybe add a couple minutes there to get a little extra time or stuff like that. And that would be like a really easy way to get in some extra aerobic work um, but not have it always have to be like planned in every Tuesday I do this 20 minutes kind of thing. Or or maybe you look to reduce the split just slightly, Sobo, right? 
Just do it a little bit. Faster. Yeah, you're less aggressive, less aggressive with yeah. it, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Or I mean, or go longer too. I mean, you can you have a couple of different op- op- uh, opportunities with cardio. You can go longer, or you can remain the same and increase intensity, or you can go shorter duration and go higher intensity. You have yeah, so, so, time, intensity, and duration domains you can play with pretty easily. Yes, yeah, so you could spend four weeks with the twenty minutes trying to get faster and faster, and then you could add then add two minutes and try to start with uh, maybe like your second progression and in intensity and then mm-hmm. try to do that faster and faster. And then you could still get this stepwise fashion over time, but adding, not having to go 20, 30, 40 minutes, but just fl- going back and forth between volume and intensity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are simple progressions. Cardio, cardio is fun in that, in that regard that you can, okay, I did, I did, you know, my average calories per minute was, you know, 13 and i did it for 20 minutes i maintained that i'm gonna once i get to 15 i'm gonna you know go up to 25 minutes and try to maintain that for 25 minutes and then once i can do that for 25 minutes i'm gonna drop it back down to 20 and increase my you know calories per minute to 15 you know you it's it's really fun you can play with them all that way and and challenge yourself mentally too on how that works so and it sounds and you alluded to this with you you really would best be suited to do this on some type of ergometer, so a skier, a rower. It's very quantifiable. That yeah, way. very quantifiable. But let's just say you're dealing with someone who wants to improve their running. Well, with how impactful on the body running can be, uh, and especially if you're not um, getting the biofeedback that you need with uh, heart rate monitoring, it sounds or it stands that you can still improve um, your aerobic systems with other modalities and work your uh, running technique and uh, uh, running economy through skill without having to only do running if running is your, um, uh, say you're training for a a marathon or a half marathon. Uh, It might not be, while there is of course specificity involved as always, the only type of cardio you want to be doing so as to improve the aerobic system yes i mean you can you can you can cross train as they call it all sorts of different ways like especially if you were a lifter and more of a crossfit i am gonna guess two things you're probably not built like a runner and your running form probably isn't the best so if you go out and you're more geared toward the lifting body type and you decide to do a lot of volume because your running times you know your your murph's horrible because your miles 15 minutes going out and running more is just going to put a lot of excess stress on your system. So in that case, you would benefit more for cross training, even though you still need to run. I mean, if you're a bad runner, you still need to run to get better at running, but you probably don't have to put in quite the miles that you would not because you can't, but probably because you shouldn't, because if you're poor, if you have poor running form, you're just going to reinforce bad habits, shin splints, um, musculoskeletal stuff with Achilles tendon stiffness, plantar fasciitis, um, some knee pain, depending if you're a four foot or a hill foot striker. And if you do a lot of volume running, then, you know, it, it could have a, a big impact on you. So you have to kind of look at your sport and what you're doing and your weaknesses. So if you're a bad runner and you know it, I'm, I'm going to run a 5k in one of these events, you know, go out and, and run, you know, your 3.2 miles, figure out how you can do that. And then get your cardio in other ways so you're not just beating yourself into the ground running over and over again. And, um, you know, just 
I wanted to maybe touch a note on specificity for the aerobic system in terms of uh, time domain is that especially more for CrossFitters or strength athletes, um, you would, I would, I would think you'd want to focus more of your aerobic stuff, maybe with this 20, 30, maybe 40 minutes, but then every now and then have an hour, like you'd want to maybe focus a little bit more on the intensity as opposed to like the 60, 90 minute, low, low intensity, high volume pieces. Yeah. So if we go back to our old ABC model, right? A, your A is your high intensity, your B is your moderate, and C is your your long, slow stuff. So you could have, if you planned out a six day training program, you could have three A's or uh, three C's, one A, and two B's, right? And you go hard and you do hard intervals on the bike or the erg or four hundred meter repeats on the track, and you go hard. But just like in weightlifting, the harder it is the less amount of time and sets you're doing. And then B is more of your middle stuff. And then your, your C's are your long, slow stuff that you can do when you're relatively tired, when you're relatively sore. So you can, you can plan that with your strength training that your C day is combined with a hard A day. So you're not doing two A's in a row and just frying yourself. So you can, you know, and you should vary your cardio up. You should not just say, okay, I listened to this podcast. I'm just going to do 30 minutes on the erg every other day. Like you still need to do some high intensity erging. You can do some high intensity biking or running as well. I think uh, an interesting topic that we can, and I don't know how much time we'll spend here. Um, we, we haven't in, on the show spoken too much about technique. Perhaps in some of the earlier episodes, we were talking about the importance of biomechanics when it comes to injury prevention. But as I think about this, um, I just don't think there's many. There, I don't think there are many people talking about. Uh, and as with all technique, it's best served when someone's with you. Uh, though, if you can get tidbits or, or uh, try things out uh, from any source, that might help you know, go for it. And maybe with that, we can perhaps touch on some things that we've seen with people uh, and what happens to their mechanics as they tire or just what some common uh, uh, mechanics are that could be improved. And the first things that the first thing that comes to my mind is erging. Um, a lot of CrossFitters are used to uh, erging with other events uh, going on at the same time, or, or rather cycling in a, an AMRAP between rowing and many other things. And, and rather than using the legs so as to save the arms for other uh, exercises, the elbow flexors uh, tend to be overused because they're just not getting appropriate leg drive. Uh, and this could, because we're talking about the oxidative system, right? We're not just talking about long, slow, steady state exercise. If you're over three minutes, the oxidative system is what's largely driving that bout. So, Sobo, just with your proximity to uh, being the husband of, a, of an Olympic rower, what have you learned from Amanda most that could best be taken away, even though we're not in person, to correct people's form uh, that can help them either in a, a CrossFit Metcon or with their lower uh, steady state exercise, perhaps not fatigue in the back? You alluded to like good form, right? So yeah, I'm the big thing, and she says this all the time, and she's corrected me multiple times, is especially with men in rowing, it's not an upper body exercise. We love to pull with our upper back and our biceps and pull really hard. 
it's a leg exercise. It's a huge leg drive. So it's if you almost think of it's like a it's like a um, a clean. It's all done with the legs and the arms are kind of just like you know ropes attached to the bar, and they're just a, a byproduct of momentum produced through the lower body. So same idea with rowing. You drive first with the legs. You maximize the legs out. You carry that momentum through with the back, and then you finish with your arms. And then you so then you immediately just repeat that pattern in reverse. Your arms go, then your back goes, then your legs go. So you kind of legs make maximize the legs, generate that momentum and power, and then what they call lay back with the back, and then pull your arms. So it all flows in one fluid pull, and then arms first, then the back comes up and you sit upright, and then you bring the legs back down. Um, so when you do that, and if you do it right, it it feels very smooth and you can feel it in your legs and your your back doesn't get tired and um, your arms don't burn out and your upper back's not on fire. But if you're doing it wrong and you're pulling first with your back and then your legs and then your arms or your arms and your legs and then your back, then you'll you'll find that weak point real easily um, as that if you think about you have a hinge in your lower back and you have you know a, a, a row or a pull with your arms and then a press with your legs, that press with the legs is always going to be the strongest. So if you don't do that first, those other two, the hinge in the back or the pull with the arms are going to get roasted first. So if you're rowing for 20 minutes and you're like, wow, my lower back's killing me or my arms are dead, you're probably doing it wrong. And it's almost the analogy there of weightlifting. Um, it, it's almost identical when you see the technique uh, fall apart. Uh, so we was talking about how it's similar to weightlifting in that you get leg drive first. And in weightlifting, that leg drive is lost uh, when the shoulders come behind the bar early because then the arms have to do the work. You don't really have the leverage to get a push from the legs. And if you watch in your own erging or in others, you often see this very upright posture thinking that the more erect the posture is, the either the healthier it is or the better the rowing is going to be. But if you think of it like staying over the bar and weightlifting, it's, it's a similar sensation where someone who's erging correctly might appear to be rounded over more, but they're actually just using their legs better than you are, otherwise sitting upright with the weight only in the uh, upper back and elbow flexors. So hopefully that was a, a good uh, technique cue for you. Uh, Kyle, you want to add to that? Before. Well, uh, this is moving on to like a little bit different subject. Well, and I just quickly before we move on, so about, is there anything in general like if you if you if you're coaching someone from afar and, and you're talking about running, are there any just general recommendations before we move on to the next and concluding topic that you would give someone for running mechanics? We don't have to dive into sprint mechanics, but just I guess running mechanics as it would pertain to endurance or for a CrossFit athlete, or maybe common mistakes. You've okay, seen. common mistakes I see is overreaching. Um. You should never strike the ground outside of, of about four inches in front of your hip. So like if you're really reaching and you have a huge hill strike, that's going to slow you down. So most efficient natural runners are more of a midfoot striker. I mean, you can strike on your toes. Um, that's fine as well. But a midfoot strike is going to put you right in the right pattern. And what we call it, it reduces braking force. So if you're if you're really reaching, um, 
and this gets into a whole lot of biomechanics, but really reaching increases your moment arm, which is going to increase the force on your body it's going to take. So I would say with runners, in general, shorter strides are not a bad thing. It's just going to, it's, it, it's actually going to help you run better than try to really elongate your strides and take these really big strides. Shorten your stride up a little bit, increase the frequency. You'll still maintain the same pace, but you won't see these huge, big, like lurching steps you see when people run. You and you look at them run, you see their their front leg fully extended, their heel making contact with the ground. That is what's going to over the course of training is going to really beat you up. Cool. All right, Kyle, where are we? Yeah, going? I just uh, I think we talked about it a little bit, but I wasn't sure it was. You know, we gave the frequency for both uh, the creatine phosphate and anaerobic glycolysis. Is the octative something you could technically do every day if you wanted to? Should you do it? Well, you do it all. You do it all day, every day. I mean, well, uh, let's say in terms of actually training it, like we were talking in, about. In in both the recovery and programming, you can do it every day. It's as long as the duration is, it, or the intensity changes. I mean, you can go for a run every day. You can ride a bike every day. You can row every day. Just you're not gonna just kill yourself every day, if that makes sense. Yeah. But one day might be more like that ten to fifteen minute, a little higher intensity. The other day might be like a low thirty to forty minute intensity kind of. Yeah, thing. I mean, I think uh, what was it? Rich Froning a couple of years ago rode like a four k every day for a whole year. Yeah, I think I saw that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I feel like we say his name and Matt. Well, yeah, well, I mean, they're the two big name. I mean, that's a lot of people. A lot of people row every day and they row after doing heavy lifts. And it's, and if you think about rowing and erging um, or erging and rowing or uh, biking, they're low impact concentric exercises. So they're not going to beat you up. That's kind of the big take home. And I wish ergs were in more gyms around the country, not just boxes and some performance gyms, but. They're great workouts for people who can't run or, you know, it's cold out. I mean, it snowed here in South Carolina. I don't know what it's up there in Nashville, but, uh, There's snow yeah. There. So <laughs> wherever you're listening from, if you can't go out and run and you don't want to run on a treadmill, I know people hate that. Um, ergings are, are great tools. Ergs, uh, bikes are great too. Um, bikes are a little bit more just lower body. That's why I kind of like ergs because there's still some upper body movement in there a nice pull so um you can do it every day you don't want to go out and do a you know a hard 2k every day but that just is kind of common sense when it comes to working out hopefully yeah um so i think it's something that i want to conclude with and i want to make sure that we uh, approach this topic correctly because to my understanding uh, this topic is one that has uh, caught a lot of attention and there's a lot more eyes being turned towards it, uh, research being turned towards it, people uh, experimenting on their own with this, and that is um, uh, breath work separate of exercise. Uh, but before we get into breath work separate of exercise, um, because we uh, do not, we're not experts uh, in, in breath work, Though Soba will just talk about when a bout of exercise gets challenging, what it is that is slowing you down. And, and we'll, that's where we'll start before we talk about breath work specifically. Okay. Well, so disclaimer here, um, I'm going to talk about purely the physiology here 
and exactly what your body's going through to the best of current, you know, literature and research in, in the respiratory system, really. So respiratory system, there are two respiratory systems, your lungs and your cells. So we have internal and external respiration. Breathing in your lungs is external respiration. We simply move air from the atmosphere around us and we move oxygen into our lungs and we move CO2 out of our lungs. And we can talk about partial pressures and how that works, but that's all um, just different laws. So point of the lungs is we have deoxygenated blood that has less amount of oxygen in it, reaches the lungs. That is then going to pick up oxygen from the lung tissue, and then it's going to drop off CO2 because the blood is now saturated in CO2 through bicarbonate molecules and some direct binding to the hemoglobin. And it drops off CO2 because there's less CO2 in our lungs than there is in our blood. And then that blood gets carried back to our heart, out our left ventricle, out to our body. So at the lung level, that is as simple as it gets, and that is as complex as it gets. Your lung tissue, outside of you having pneumonia, you having some type of um, bronchitis or um, asthma, that respiration is very, lar very largely unaffected. You have enough surface area in your lungs about the size of a tennis court. So you have tons of little alveoli that allow for this oxygen to move across those cell membranes in and out of your lungs, in and out of your blood, CO2 and oxygen relatively quickly. We have different partial pressures that help with that. We have diffusion gradients that help with that. We have diffusion constants that help with that. So all sorts of things are in our favor at our lungs to pick up oxygen and drop off CO2. And then as we move through the heart and through the vascular system, all that is is simply a carrier of hopefully saturated oxygen blood and desaturated um, CO2 blood to our cells. Now, when we get to our cells, that concentration gradient is set up by how much oxygen is being taken up in the cells and how much CO2 is being produced by the cells. So if you are a normal resting person, you're only using about 20% of the oxygen you breathe in. I mean, at, at a kind of a maximal level, it's probably even less than that. It's probably 15 to 10% of the oxygen you breathe in, and that gets into your blood, actually gets uptaked by your uh, cells. So you have about 80% reserve coming back. So if you're fully saturated in your arterial blood, you're desaturated in your venous blood, but you still have about 80% oxygen in those that blood um, so at rest it's not a big deal as you start to exercise that saturation levels are going to drop so you still will be fully saturated going to the muscle but then when that blood leaves the muscle the muscle cells it might not be at 80 percent it might be down at 40 percent and so now your saturation levels are 60 percent uptake so you've desaturated your your muscles so we actually are your, your blood going to your muscles so we have thing cool things called um smo2 measurements if you go to the hospital and you stick that little thing on your finger that little infrared um thing that goes on the tip of your finger that's your oxygen saturation it should be about 98 percent. most people are at 98 percent, and your blood's fully saturated but we have these cool little smo2 measures that we can stick on muscle and we can measure the oxygen coming in at 98 percent, and then what the oxygen in the venous um, return systems going out. 
and I've put these on. We've done it with elite cyclists, elite runners. We can get that at max level to about 18%. So it comes in at 98. You take um, 80% or you know 80 away, you're still left with 18%. So even at our toughest maximal VO2 max, we still still have 18% still saturated with oxygen. So what's driving that is how much CO2 your body's producing and how much oxygen your body's taking up. So once we leave exercised muscle, we now have less oxygen and more CO2. We take that CO2 to the lungs and we drop it off and we pick up more oxygen. So what's going to drive your respiration rate? Well, right now you're breathing anywhere between 10 and 20 times a minute, a nice relaxed breath. And of course, when you start to exercise, that breath goes up. Well, that breath primarily is going up because your pneumotax um, system in your body, especially some of those uh, barrel and chemical receptors in your um, carotid artery are going to tell us how much CO2 is in your blood. So if you have a lot of CO2, the best way to get rid of CO2 is to breathe it out. So your breathing rate increases because we need to expel more CO2 out of our system. Because if you have too much CO2 in your blood, your blood becomes more um, acidosis or has more acid in it. If you can get rid of CO2, you'll become more alkaline. So and it's we're talking we're operating in, in 7.4 to 7.6 ranges of your blood pH levels. So when you start to breathe heavy because you're exercising, it's because your body's trying to get rid of that CO2, you probably still have plenty of oxygen in your system. We're not, oxygen is not a huge rate limiter when it comes to performance because that cells never get rid of it. You're ne you'll never see 0% oxygen coming back to your heart. So it's really about expelling CO2 and getting CO2 out of your system than it is trying to get oxygen into your system. That was a huge system right well, there on it <laughs> um no, that's good uh, and i think so what you're saying is that based on what you're saying there um breathing alone may not be what limits us in, in a or whenever someone says i just couldn't breathe that's not actually like no if you can't like if you can't breathe, you're going through asphyxiation and you're probably going to die um, <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why we can hold our breath. If we had to breathe every second of every day, you know, we, we'd, we'd be breathing every time our heart beats. So we, we, we have the opportunity if we go from, if we're only operating at 90% desaturation levels, we're still have, you know, seven or eight cycles of that blood going through our body before we fully desaturate it. So you have plenty of oxygen in the system. So when they say you can't breathe and you, you go out and you run and all of a sudden you come back and you're winded. It's your body's ability or your body's inability to account for all that CO2 that you've just produced by burning a lot of energy in your system. That's what drives our breath is CO2, not oxygen. So um, tying this back and kind of concluding this, this show, uh, tying it back to the phosphagen system is that often when we uh, have these feelings of intense uh, instances of being limited by breath, it, it's more in these very high intensity bouts. And if you're not used to that, uh, there can be a lot of psychological distress because it is 
very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of acid being produced that creates a lot of hurt or that suck that, that is used to explain those bouts. Now, uh, a lot of uh, great athletes are oftentimes described as being able to push through that. Mm -hmm. uh, so Rich will feel uh, the same level of hurt as someone else um, perhaps he has a different psychological way of handling it. And well, and his intensity is just and, so much higher at that level of hurt. And yeah. where someone else might try to keep up with Rich, they've mm -hmm. then exceeded their hurt because Rich is yeah. uh, he's at 90% while they're at 100%. Exactly. Yeah. However, there, a lot of people have been working with breathing techniques to, I think. At, at its core, uh, address more of these psychological matters. So if you've ever heard of or have practiced on your own meditation, there's usually attention to the breath and a slowing down of the breath that uh, elicits this relaxation, uh, it el elicits more calm, so that probably the best thing you can do before any bout of exercise or anything in your life that's stressful is just be aware of the breath. Try to slow it down. Um, what we've uh, seen perhaps in, in, in recent literature as uh, Dr. Galpin, Andy Galpin explained in a study from, I think at this point, many years back is that there were athletes uh, and perhaps it was a bike and they had separate breathing tasks that they had to do. The interesting thing, and these are pre, uh, breath patterns that they would do before the bout of exercise, that some of the breathing patterns improved performance quite noticeably, while for the same person, that same breathing pattern would actually reduce their performance uh, quite dramatically. So there does seem to be a connection between breath work that you could do before bout of exercise and the result of that exercise, though at least right now it seems unclear as for what type of breathing pattern a specific person may need. Well, it, it may be it may be as individual as who you are too. I mean, there's not a one size fits all, you know, breathing pattern for you because you may be highly trained and you can handle more CO2 in your system. So if you do a slow breathing pattern, which reduces the exploit um the breathing out of co2 you can handle that like i know there's the box breathing you do in yoga where you you know you breathe in for six seconds hold for six seconds breathe out for six seconds hold for six seconds right so there's a point at which you're not breathing and your body's still going through metabolism still producing co2 still pulling oxygen out so now you went from normally 80 percent and it gets replenished to 98 now you went from 80 you didn't breathe that last cycle so now it's down to 80 it's down to 74 well if you're used to handling 74 saturation level that box breathing may not have an effect on you, but if you're not used to be at that level, it may have a huge effect on you. So it's it's all going to be relative to the athlete and to your own experiences and your own training on how those are going to affect you. So I think a good way to wrap it up would be, at least for this breathing conversation, to vary the intensities of your cardio, kind of know the challenge of a longer 
lower intensity relative to the higher bouts of intensity. And when it comes to those higher bouts of intensity, those um, uh, uh, psychological stressors and emotional responses that come with that suck shouldn't be avoided, but it also should be something that you ease into. And I think that's some uh, big mistake that people quite often make is, is that, uh, you know, with weight training, we, tr we have clear progressions by way of percentages. But when it comes to the, uh, uh, the phosphagen system and anaerobic glycolysis, we know that we have to push hard. But as we mentioned in the previous podcast, when you notice diminished returns, that's when you can be doing more harm than good. So make sure that you're easing into those systems, that your uh, intensities can stay high, and that you're adjusting how many intervals you're doing so as to maintain that intensity and progress it appropriately. And that you can use this oxidative, lower intensity system and setting to improve the higher intensity settings. So you have a good aerobic base and that you can also recover between the higher intensity bouts. Uh, so guys, before we sign off, and hopefully that was wrapped up okay, any final thoughts uh, at all? I don't have any. Well, that was great. So, Bo, Did we get an outro? Are we going to get a post-production outro put into? Potentially. Potentially. We'll, we'll see what and, I can do. And we'll, we'll, we're, we're, we're going to still kind of toggle with the audio, um, refining any blips and uh, cutting outs, but uh, just know that we are doing our best to move in the right direction with that, guys. Uh, and that's all for today, and we'll talk to you soon. See you guys.